They put me immediately on the main bunker looking at the Benoit Bridge and they gave me a 30 caliber machine gun. They locked and loaded it for me, put sandbags on the tripod and they said, there you go, son. And don't <laughs> shoot until they come close. <laughs> I said, okay, all right. <laughs> Okay, so here we go. So now, everybody, now we will start. Okay. I was maybe seven or eight years old. My mother was, she was intoxicated, but she pulled me into the room and she sat me down. And she said, you're old enough now to hear about your birth. Okay, so here it was. January 9th, 1948, my mother had multiple babies. At that time, there was no ultrasound, there was none of these uh, very advanced things that they had to tell you all these things about how many babies, etc., etc., etc. They didn't know except that she had multiple babies. <laughs> Anyways, it so happened, January 9th, 1948, there was a raging, raging storm going on in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where I was born. And this storm had caused great havoc all over Atlantic City, whereas the police, the fire department, the taxis, everybody was out saving people from the torrential rains and uh, everything that was going on in this typhoonish type of storm. Mm -hmm. My mother's bag of water broke. Mm. So she called my father immediately. So my father was at the other end of town. He couldn't get to her. So so he said, you call 911 immediately. So she called 911 and then the dispatcher said, well, we're really sorry. I can't get anybody out there. Everybody's already saving somebody's life right now. Wait a minute, wait a minute. And she said there was a taxi cab near where my mother was living. So the taxi cab went there and picked up my mother and then drove as fast as he could go, warning the situation at hand to the hospital. So this is gospel from my mother only. This is not from the hospital and what they fudged up in my records, whatever you want to say. This is from my mother. Okay, mm -hmm. she told me that as the taxi was approaching the hospitals, the babies started coming out. Oh the first baby came out in the taxi cab, bam, breathed the fresher air and then died immediately. The second baby came out, breathed the fresher air, died immediately. 
The third baby came out. This is how the taxi cab is going. Blood, everything all over the place. Babies all over the place. The fourth baby came out and it breathed the fresh air and died immediately. And then Mrs. Gospel, according to my mother only, she said when they arrived at the hospital, they were all waiting, everybody, in great anticipation. And they opened the door and I came out. They grabbed me, they stuck me, they chipped me, and then they said, put him in the incubator. Now, I've talked to Sadapunta at great length about this story or paranoia, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But just a few months I'm talking, before my birth, what did we have? Roswell. And mm -hmm. Sadapunta told me that these gray creatures, whatever you want to call them, are scientists, the first batch that came. Mm -hmm. And in their spacecraft they had DNA, from all the different galaxies, from all the different where they've been in the creation, they've chosen the best and the most advanced humanoid type living entities, insectoids, lizards, whatever they can find with advanced intelligence. They've gotten this DNA they've gathered. So I'm just saying this is like I've told you like before, this could be a paranoia, it could not be true, it could be whatever, you take it for what it's worth. In any case, there it is. Here's the, that's the scenario. So, here I am in an incubator. These aliens have organized, a, have started an organization on our planet with people that I don't even know who they are, the Rothschilds or whoever you guys are, you know, formed an organization on this planet, on this planet. Yeah. for the experimentation with these aliens for what we have now today, advanced technology in exchange for their experimentation. So, what are they looking for? They can't go in and start pulling people out and shooting them up and everything, but babies in incubators are prime and perfect specimens, especially me folks, I have to say, there I was. I weighed 2.9 pounds, my mama said. I was laying in this incubator with this thing. I got the scar right there, I got the chip right there. You can see the chip, it's right there. And there I am, and then they just did something, and it goes down the tube, and no one knows anything. Then they put the saline, and Bang and the bang, there it is. That one of the first guinea pigs, I could say, one of the first humanoids on this planet who was injected with DNA from another creature of another galaxy, of another world, somewhere that you cannot even understand. So now that's my birth. And then, as I was growing up, who do I have? But John Edward Matson. In this day and age, they call him Navy SEALs, but in World War II, he was a Navy submarine frogman commando. They shot him out of the torpedo tube and he assassinated Japanese, and he was a crazy, crazy, crazy guy. I don't even know if he was my father after what I tell you. I'm leaving out so this all. Was your dad. What? He was in World War II. He was in yeah. World. My dad was in World War II. Okay. He he killed Japs. He was mm. he was he was a Jap submarine commando. He lived he lived in a submarine. Yeah, no, they did some crazy. Yeah, stuff. he's gone through some yeah. crazy shit. Yes, tech charging all that kind of you know. Yeah. You know, so anyway, so there I am living with this man and my mother, and so this man. I guess at the age of four, well anyway, so now to clarify, now I'm going to clarify my belief that I have been impregnated with alien DNA because you can, and my mother's not alive now, nor my father, or my brothers and sisters if they're around, they can attest to it, but the thing is, I would have nightmares every single night for years and years day after night after night after night, the same nightmare. 
I would be on an operating table in a cage with all these crazy looking doctors all around me and they would be having surgical tools and all kinds of things in their hands and then the table would spin around and like when you get a Novocaine, when you get in your, mm -hmm. you see it get that, that Novocaine, you start drifting into an endless whirlpool of nothing. I started spinning, the table started spinning so fast that it threw me out of the cage and then I would go down to a whirlpool of endlessness, darkness, cold, and heat, and suffer so mm. much. So I had to endure that. Mm. So, you know. So you ended up, how old were you, you, you joined the army, were you drafted? Or? Okay, so, 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 so getting back mm. to the rest of my, 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 go through my childhood very briefly, I shall mm. be getting to the, why I joined the army. Mm -hmm. Okay, while I was growing up, my father became an obsessive alcoholic. Very, very powerful alcoholic. And being a Navy SEAL, we'll call him a Navy SEAL, make a long story short. Mm -hmm. He beat us every night mm -hmm. with a whip, with his fist, with a belt, with a... He had a cat stick, especially for me. And he raped me twice. Mm -hmm. And he tried to kill me three times. Actually kill me. Really tried to kill me. And mm -hmm. That's as far as I'm going with my childhood. Yeah. I'm giving yeah. you a scenario without going into the detail yeah. or the front. Okay, so now you have an understanding. And now I'm also hearing my, my, my mother being beat also every night. Mm -hmm. And her on cancer and her on drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. and it was a big mess. Anyways, I went to high school. Mm -hmm. And while I was in school, I had the hardest time. It was really hard, you know. Every all I could look forward to every day was getting beat at night, and you know I'm trying to live a life, trying to go to school. So my father, because he was such an excessive drinker, mm -hmm. I had to go out and take care of myself and my family, and I had to live in the streets, hustling. I'm not going into that detail, but I was living in the streets hustling and doing whatever you can think about to put dinner on the table because my papa drank all the money. So, wow. there's a good scenario right there of my, of my life in a way, okay? So, I went through high school and I never had a girlfriend. I never engaged with sex with a woman only getting raped by my father a couple of times and I'm not going any further mm -hmm. than that. And, you know, I never had that opportunity to have that kind of understanding. So, but in any case, making a long story short, I decided I wanted to go to Vietnam. I heard mm -hmm. there was a war going on. I want to go to Vietnam with the sole purpose to go over there and kill as many gooks as I could kill mm. and then come back and kill my father mm. for what he did to me and that was my motivation wow. that was the real reason why I joined the army no other reason was there nothing more so now <laughs> the interesting part yeah. all of a sudden the army recruiter said okay so we want to give you a battery of tests now you know, so they started going out with the tests, you know. Yeah. And then they gave me this booklet, you know, and they said, how fast can you do this and how accurate can you put these things together? So what it was, was objects, different shapes laid out flat. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And so laid out flat, it's just laid out flat. And then they had multiple choice, one, two, three, four. Multiple choices in four different kinds of boxes, what it could be. I did it so fast, I got them all right, <laughs> that all of a sudden, the recruiter, after, after they did all the tests and everything, come up to me. And he says, Mr. Matson, that's my name, James Edward Matson, M-A-T-T-S-O-N. <laughs> Anyways. He said, Mr. Matson, you have an IQ of 147. Damn. And I said, how is that possible? 
I have been living in the streets, hustling people. I got all C's, D's, and F's in school. I haven't had a girlfriend or a friend my whole life. How can it be that I have an IQ of 147? And they said, that's not the irony of it, Mr. Matson. In Vietnam, we have a critical MOS. Mm -hmm. That's we're in dire need of people with your he didn't say magical, but I'll say magical powers. Yeah, yeah. And they said that uh, we would definitely like you. How would you like to be in military intelligence? Oh, wow. And I said, wait a minute, let me think about this. Now I'm sitting back. I'm thinking, wow, I want to go to Vietnam and kill and kill my father. But then again, I've always wanted to be a spy. <laughs> So it intrigued me. I said, I'll do it. I'll become your military intelligence. Mm -hmm. And he says, what, am I, what, 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 what is it about me that warrants me to be in your military intelligence world? He says, you have very, very, very powerful stereo vision. Mm -hmm. And you have a photogenic mind and rambled on so many things about me psychically and all these things. So anyways, I said, wow. And what year was this? This is June 20th, 1966, mm. in Massachusetts. And then I went to Fort Dix for my basic training. Like you all know, we all go through basic training. Mm. And I do have to say, I didn't do very well, I performed very well. It's kind of small, like I'm small bones, you know, so mm -hmm. I was always called, always, I was always outcast in that too. I never had real friends. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable everything. I'm really rolling in this now. Okay, so there I am at Fort Dix. And I go through basic normally, you know, and then I get to advanced infantry training at Fort Bragg, you know, advanced jungle warfare in Vietnam, so I learned all the techniques of jungle warfare. You know, so I know how to use a knife, I know how to use a crossbow, I know how to shoot an M14, <laughs> an M16, an M40, whatever, I can, I'm, I'm, I can roll. Yeah. Okay, I was trained at Fort Dix and Fort Bragg. And then they sent me off to guess where? Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> and guess what the U.S. Army base was called? Fort Halliburg. Now you military intelligence freaks out there, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway, there I am at Fort Halliburg. This Army base was small, and all it did was train you and all the different secret weapons, all the different technology, everything about Russia and, and how to be mm. a spy and an interrogator and uh, a whole thing. This, like this, is, Cold War. this is where they trained everybody for the Vietnam conflict, okay? <clears throat> everybody in military intelligence went to Fort Hollibur, didn't y'all? Okay. I have to say I never drank, folks. I never drank, even at base, even in boot camp and at Fort Bragg, I had a few beers, but I never got into drinking, you know, until I went to Fort Hollibird. <laughs> and what do you think happened at Fort Hollibird? A friend of mine, a PFC, same as me, we were both PFCs, come up to me and said, have you ever met Captain Morgan? <laughs> And I said, Captain Morgan, who's that guy? And he said, oh, well, I'll tell you what. I'm right here, a couple of six-packs of Coca-Cola, and I've got a fifth here of Captain Morgan. We're going to teach you how to drink, boy. Hans is dying out of you. You're killing Hans. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so there I am. <laughs> Choked on the water. Oh, 
Okay, what was I saying? Captain Morgan. Okay, so there I am. Six so pack of he introduced me to Captain Morgan, and we sat there, and we drank that whole fifth of Captain Morgan and two six-packs of Coca-Cola, and I got so sick, and I got so hungover. <coughs> but you know what, folks? I became an alcoholic. So, now we're going to get into that later on, how I overcame alcoholism. Mm, yeah. So, in any case, so there I am, so I started being an alcoholic at Fort Hollowbird. Okay, so making a long story short, then I was sent over to the Republic of South Vietnam in 1967. Okay. And... This is funny too because when I got there we landed at Thompson Air Force. We all we know we landed at Benoit Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. And everybody came off the plane, we're all soldiers going to war. And I was the only one that was given a private coot. And I had to stay there at this air base for three or four days until someone could come and get me. Mm -hmm. You know, because I'm going to tell you now, now, now all you militaries and intelligent freaks, now please, don't kill me, don't, you know, because I'm going to tell you secrets and things now, you know, from Vietnam, don't, don't go there with me, okay, I'm telling you this now, okay. So anyway, there I am, the pig, you got the picture now, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so... I remember one, finally the jeep comes! And picks me up and then it's a long jeep ride and to where we were and to where we took me was the Kaubenlei Bridge. There were only two bridges in the Saigon from, from, north, from the north. Mm -hmm. There was a bridge here, Kaubenlei, and there was another bridge over here that went into Saigon, mm -hmm. direct. Okay. All around Kaubenlei Bridge was an Arvin, I forgot there were Rangers or whatever they were, but they were elite Arvins. Hmm. We were in, and right along the Saigon River there, going that way, there was our little military intelligence complex, which is very small, consisting of maybe four or five buildings only. Hmm. I was just sitting there, surrounded by all these Arvins, and connected to this one bridge going into Saigon. And guess what, folks? They spray every periodically all around this bridge, all around the base camp with Agent Orange. And now I'm going to get into that too, folks. And now you all want to hear about that too. Okay, so here I am exposed to Agent Orange, living in a military intelligence situation, secret, top secret, crypto, they had everybody living there at this, comp this company I was with, the 45th Military Intelligence Company, connected to the 525 Military Intelligence Group. Okay, so there we are. And then I was brought so, so, so then, as the jeep was well, entering, where, where were you that again? Calvin Lay. Calvin Lay. Calvin Lay. It's the Ben Lloyd Bridge. Okay. The Ben Lloyd Bridge. We gotta hear some really good stories about this Ben Lloyd Bridge. So anyway, so then we drive up to the comp, into the comp, up to the complex. I get out of the jeep. We got my bag. The jeep goes away, and I walking through. The, the guards are on both sides, you know, with the bunkers and everything, machine guns, everything, you know. I walk through, and then, all of a sudden, my a, a, a private comes running up to me. His name was Private John Pada. Anyways, he comes running up to me, and he said, Welcome to Vietnam! Now, we have a cliché here. Soldiers, we have formed a group, and we would like you to smoke this cigarette. I know, and I said, well, I've never smoked a cigarette. I don't never done it. Is this smoke? Is this? You know, of course, you know what it is. It's marijuana cut with heroin plus whatever the military intelligence world put 
in the marijuana to intensify and yeah. to make my powers to the max. They were, and, they were at that time, I know the CIA was doing a lot of tests with LSD and other... Oh, like right, anyways, let me get into this. This is what, this is the experiments they were doing with me. Okay, I don't know what drugs they put in the marijuana. Maybe it was some kind of LSD mm -hmm. thing, whatever it was. But in any case, making a long story short, I got stoned and then, you know, I went to sleep and then in the morning, you know, I said to him, he said, have you ever had sex with a girl? And I said, no. Oh, I'm going to excuse all the French on this one. But he said, we are going to take you to Two Story. And Two Story is a cat house which was set up for my military intelligence unit that I was in. Mm -hmm. Just for them. There, there was a bunch of prostitutes there. They were all shot up with regularly. There was no venereal diseases. There were, it was just for us. Because we were the, we were running the war mm -hmm. on the computer at all times. Anyways. So, he said, I'm going to take you to two stories. So I said, okay. I didn't know what it was, so he took me and he talked to Papa Sarge. And Papa Sarge, you know, every aspect of Vietnam, he's a, he's a Vietnamese guy. He wears boxers and he wears a t-shirt or no t-shirt. He sits there in his chair. And, you know, and so that's Papa Sarge. And so he, so my friend John Pollock went up to Papa Sarge and said, gave him a whole bunch of money. And then he said, whispered in Papa Sarge's ear. And then Papa Sam called in all the girls. I don't know how many there were. I'm not going to get into details, but it's just like being in Amsterdam, you know, okay. <laughs> all right, there I am looking at all these beautiful, long, black-haired, beautiful girls. And I said, oh my Lord, what am I going to do? I'm going to outside. And so then, Pop, so then my friend said, okay, girls, this boy is a cherry boy. Oh my lord, <laughs> I had every single one of those ladies approach me. Please, G.I., let me take your cherry. Please, please, please. Oh my god. <laughs> this is my first experience oh with all these god. different aspects of what you think is you're getting enjoyment from. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so there it is. So I'm, 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 I'm excusing the French from going on now. Yeah, yeah. So there I'm that part of that. So there, there you got my first two days in Vietnam. God, <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. Welcome to Vietnam! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've right. heard, that's sad, the crazy thing is from all the vets, Vietnam vets that I, that I meet at work, stories like this are like, yeah. Like, like, it was, I can't even imagine, oh yeah. my god, just... So anyways, we're getting so then, the next day I was introduced to the colonel and Sergeant Gandhi! Sergeant Gandhi, he was a box, uh, he was a staff sergeant and he had his big tattoo of an eagle. I guess he was, he had loving... Anyways, he liked me. And I, I got a story to say about him as I was going to Vietnam. So anyways, we got in the bus, and we all were were carrying M14, you know, automatic weapons mm -hmm. with one magazine in it, and we all went in our bus to where I started my work in Vietnam, and that was at Combined Intelligence Center, Vietnam, SICV, C-I-C-V, SICV. Every aspect of the war was going on in this complex, in this mm -hmm. building. It was bomb proof. It had all these gigantic computers. It had the crypto rooms. It had all the, the, the I.I., you know, roll, roll films and all the battle plans and all the maps and the, wow. all the, everything that was going on. Everything that happened in Vietnam. So everything like went on at Sikvi. Right beside Sikvi was JGS, Vietnamese Intelligence. And across on the other side of Sikvi was MACV headquarters, where General Westmoreland and his gang oh, wow. sat. 
So there we were. So now you're getting a scenario. So you're working with like that. Was, yeah, that's like so top you, brass. So you can see where I was. Where I was working with the top brass. Okay. Wow. And then we're utilizing my powers. And and then now listen to this now. You know. Now I can freely say this because I'm dying. I smoked marijuana twenty four seven during the most advanced secret intelligence photo interpretation you can do for this US country and they allowed me to smoke and so of course you know there had to be something in there that they put to allow me to smoke marijuana 24-7 and that's the honest to God's truth wow. So, kept you guys all up. And, and then you heard about Malai, the massacre, didn't there? was a yeah. massacre. What that probably is called? Malai massacre. massacre. You know, this is just me, folks. This is just me with my intelligence mind, my photogenic mind, and what I type in computers. Because I did COC reports for three months. Mm -hmm. I know all about all that kind of stuff, too. Anyways, what was I saying? <laughs> Talking about the Mi Lai Massacre. Okay, so the Mi Lai So what they did, and it, all, it makes sense. Yeah. Because, first off... They killed what? Three, it was like 300 people. 501 civilians. Wow. Okay, so this is what happened from what I think is what, what I think what happened. There was a company. A company of, I forget what, Rangers or whatever. whatever I don't know the details of it. This is just my... This is just me, folks. Just me only. The U.S. military government it used Vietnam as an experimental for weapons and for psychological and for design, designing and developing the perfect soldier. Mm. An unthinkable killing machine with no remorse, with not, no thought, without no mercy. Anyways, I believe that this company of soldiers were smoking marijuana that was indoctrinated with chemicals to induce this type of scenario. And as a result of it, it backfired because it's experimental. Mm -hmm. And instead of it doing what it was supposed to do, these soldiers flipped out and started brutally Killing babies, old people, slicing them and destroying them, brutally destroying everything. Just destroyed everything and brutally raped the women and just did havoc and they had no remorse. So you tell me folks what's going on. And now you look at the Navy SEALs. I see pictures of the Navy SEAL movies. What we see on television and movies is 10 years in the backwards. They're so much more advanced in technology and weaponry. But the point is, you know, that they experimented with the M16, the M79 grenade launcher, and of course, the M60 machine gun. All experimental weapons, never before used in battle. And as a result, a percentage of the deaths from Vietnam were caused by weapons malfunctioning mm. because of that aspect mm -hmm. of the experiment that they used on our generation. Mm. And so anyway, so going on, so there I am doing all this military intelligence work, smoking this dope and doing all these things, you know. Mm -hmm. So then they had me do COC reports. And then, you know, I, 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 I don't know what happened to me. I was, I only had sex with prostitutes. I only smoked the dope that was given to me by Papa San, one Papa San, one Papa San only. I'm sure he was connected to the military and, mm -hmm. you know, and I lived my life in Vietnam and I did three tours. Oh. I did three tours, folks, in Vietnam. I when was, was there, your last tour? My right? last tour was in 69. Mm -hmm. I was there for the Tet Offensive. Oh, wow. 
I was there for the ten. In fact, you know how important I was for the ten attention? I am the guy. I'm the one who was looking for 122 millimeter rocket positions all around Saigon. I turn up. Okay, continue. Okay, so Sorry. what were you saying? So yeah, Tet Offensive, you're there. Um, okay, so there I am in Six B and I was the one looking for one twenty two millimeter rocket positions all around Saigon. During the Tet Offensive I was I came under fire one time. I came under fire at the motor pool after the motor pool was shot up mm -hmm. and 22 of our soldiers were wounded because some guy shot at the VC running across the street in the Saigon because they took over the Benoit Bridge. Mm -hmm. So, of course, what did they do? As soon as I got to the to the compound because I was an E5, and mm -hmm. I, maybe I was, yeah, I was an E5 during that, I was an E5. Okay, I was sergeant of the guard. They put me immediately on the main bunker looking at the Benoit Bridge, and they gave me a 30 caliber machine gun. They locked and loaded it for me, put sandbags on the tripod, and they said, there you go, son, and don't <laughs> shoot until they come close. <laughs> I said, okay, all right. <laughs> So I got my bag of weed and I'm smoking and I'm sitting up there with this 30 caliber machine gun oh and I'm waiting for Charlie to go and then, then the VC took over the bridge, you know, and they mounted a 37mm anti-aircraft gun on there, Soviet type, and they were shooting that helicopter and things, I'm sitting here, I'm like, holy shit, bullets are flying over the, over the guard tower, and if I fire, you know, the whole compound is going to be leveled to the ground, you know. No, so I, I, I couldn't do anything. There I am, stomped out of my brain to a certain camera machine. I couldn't do nothing. I was paralyzed. So, oh my God. in the morning, I looked at the Saigon River bias, and you know, of course, I seen maybe 15 or 20 VC bubbles like balloons in the water floating around, you know, so I've seen death, you know. Anyway, so. Anyway, that was the compound, that was my compound experience. And then immediately, uh, the first cab came down, and they took over the bridge again, and then they set up tanks and APC in front of our compound, and we were protected for the rest of the Tet Offensive. Wow. Yeah, the Tet But then they got us somehow to Sikvi, where I had to do all this high-level work. 24-7 mm -hmm. I was going. Taking a, we, we, we were doing eight hour, eight hour shifts, mm -hmm. twenty four seven going. The battles were going every, every, every U.S. military complex was attacked at the same time. Oh yeah. Damn. Powerless we became, but we. The soldier, you know. The soldier, you know, they trained us well. They mm -hmm. did. They, I mean, I mean, even though we're all stoned, I mean, still they trained us well, you know, yeah. and different weaponry. And, and then you've already been out in the bush, you've already killed, you've already seen somebody blow up in a thousand pieces. And this is another thing, too, all you psychiatrists and all you psychologists and why you're having so much trouble with the veterans, mm -hmm. it's because you haven't been on the battlefield. So how can you help someone who's been on the battlefield? Yeah. How can you help him? How can you help this soldier yeah. understand what he has just gone through? Mm -hmm. You cannot do it. This is why the Veterans Administration is... They can't keep psychiatrists, they can't keep psychologists because they're failing and failing in every attempt mm -hmm. to help these poor vets. Yeah. And as a result of them trying, they get taken off their connection with the government and they get thrown out in the streets. And mm -hmm. I can say maybe 60, 70% of all the homeless in, in this beautiful 
town of Gainesville and Alachua oh, or nice. Vietnam or Afghanistan or some other veteran, you know, put out there in the streets by this country. Yeah. Okay, so and now everyone got... runs around saying, oh, thank, the, they see the, the soldiers or the veterans, oh, thank you for your service, but then they go and they vote for people who are going to go into office and continue the wars. You're telling me thank you for my service, but yet you're going to yeah, keep right, putting exactly. these people in office. Yeah, why didn't they say thank you for your service when I came back from Vietnam? Yeah. No, instead they spit on me, yeah. they shit on me, and they and, and if I told anybody I was from Vietnam, I, oh God, I was like the scum of the earth. You yeah. know? I said, what the hell is this? I just... Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, so I can understand all you veterans out there yeah. more than your damn psychiatrist because I, I wasn't out there right directly in the battlefield, but I was orchestrating the battle. I was actually involved in 13 major campaigns in Vietnam wow. involving Marines, Army, Air Force, and Navy. Australians and all the other secret countries that were involved. Mm -hmm. So you come back from Vietnam, and then where? How did you go about? Okay, so 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 there you go. So now I got that scenario. So I, my biker friends in Vietnam, you know, told me that I should get out because this is what happened. I'm getting ready to get out of Vietnam. You know, my discharge is come on. My three years is up. Get getting to come up. I had to extend my DROs two months so I could to do an extra tour in Vietnam. Mm. So there I am now. I'm getting. They, they want me to reenlist, and they said, first off, we're going to offer you staff so E6, mm. a two-year duty assignment anywhere in the world you want to go. Of course, that's all fudge because my MOS ninety six D twenty. It's so rare that there's not that many facilities in the world that mm, yeah, can do, my, can do yeah. what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay, so there, there you are, so there that is, you mm -hmm. know, of the 96D20. Wow. Okay, so Next now you ask another question. Yeah, so how did you go from Vietnam to Okay, so, okay, so, okay, so, okay, so I came back. I got my discharge in Oakland, I got to San Francisco, and mm. I never had the experience of being alone, mm. totally alone, in a matrix-type world. And I didn't know how to talk to people, mm. I didn't know how to relate to a girl, I didn't know how to do anything because I've only, you know my story. So mm -hmm. there it is, you know. I learned so yeah, somehow I got a bus to Worcester, Massachusetts, my hometown. I got a job at Nuco, New England High Carbon Wire Company, doing, and they trained me up to be a metallurgical analyst assistant. Mm -hmm. So I became a metallurgical analyst assistant. I had a good job working as a laboratory technician. But again, you know, back to Vietnam. And back to how they wanted to get as much control out of me as they could to to where to find to where they were all set up for, for my living situation in Worcester. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to smuggle some of this weed home for because <laughs> I'm getting out of the army now, you know. I, so I wanted to smuggle. I had three kilos. <laughs> You some. <laughs> anyway, now listen to this. I had three kilos of this Vietnamese weed cut with heroin and whatever the military intelligence put in it. So my friend Elliot Abelson had a whole box full of Kool-Aid packets. So we took maybe 150 Kool-Aid packets and stuffed them and packed, packed them full of marijuana and sealed them all up. So then I went to the PX and I had so much money I bought every kind of stereo equipment you can think about. Everything. I brought them back to the complex and we opened them up and we started stuffing them with Kool-Aid packets. And we all, 
putting packs of PQA packets in these machines between all the, the light bulbs and everything because it wasn't technology in those days. Anyway, so we packed, sealed them all up, boxed them up, and then I sent them to my uncle in Worcester, Massachusetts. And they got them, no problem. They got his So. So there I am, out to San Francisco, and I'm thinking, you know, I was thinking, because I was strung out, you know, oh God, I was strung out, because I was, a her I was doing heroin every day for two oh years, you know, so, I was, I was, I was just, so I, all I could think about was just my stereo equipment in Worcester, Massachusetts, <laughs> so somehow I either took a plane, a train, or a bus or something, but I got to Worcester, Massachusetts, I got to my uncle's house. I knocked on the door, he opened the door, and he said, I, we embraced and everything. And then he said, oh, all your stereo, all your boxes are in your room. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, God, there, if, if, if there is a God. I've never seen Christian or anything. I don't even know Jesus, nothing. And I said, if there's a God, it's there. So... <laughs> I went to my room and looked, and little behold, there were ten boxes of stereo equipment. I said, holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> so I opened up the tuner amplifier. Fire first. <laughs> I opened the box. <laughs> I pulled it out. I got my screwdriver. I'm praying the whole time. <laughs> I pulled the lid off and what do you think I saw? Fifteen Kool-Aid packets in there and I said, Oh Lord, there was a God. So I had three kilos of this Vietnam weed. I don't think we'll ever do an interview like this ever again. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Never hear stories like this. Okay, so I rolled up three joints. Real thin one, and I went over across the street to the university. It was called Clark University, and this university is where you train psychologists and psychiatrists. All right. So I went across the street because I wanted to talk to somebody and meet somebody. I hadn't talked to anybody yet, you know, hardly. So I. Walked into the middle of the university and sat under the flagpole in the evening with a lighter and three joints in my hand, waiting, waiting. And then finally, two boys and a girl, students, stopped walking by. And I said, hi. And they said, hi. I said, have you ever smoked Vietnamese weed? <laughs> Wait a minute, friends, right there. <laughs> oh my God! So they come over and they said, "Vietnamese weed." I said, "Yeah, I just got back from Vietnam and I just happened to have some." Three kilos of it. Oh my God! So I said, "Okay." So we, I took out one of the smaller joints and I said, "Okay, you guys light up and take each of you take one hit and see how, what you think of it." No lie. Or exaggeration, all three of them, after they took one hit, were on their backs. They couldn't move. <laughs> oh, we were so fucking stoned. They were just so fucking stoned. <laughs> Whew, wiped out, completely wiped out. <laughs> so then the next thing you know, I have 15 or 20 of these kids all around me. <laughs> and then they break out the music. And guess what kind of music we're listening to? The Grateful Dead. Mm. So all of a sudden now, I am becoming a deadhead. Mm. Mm. And so, That's funny, that's how my, da my dad really loved The Grateful Dead too. Well anyways, there it was. So, And then there was a band that was connected to this group of kids that I was connected to, Cat's Cradle. So it's all 
So I'm giving you a scenario to mm -hmm. lead up on how I became a devotee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so also at the same time, I'm continually doing different varieties of drugs, working at NUCO as a laboratory technician and gallivanting around trying to score with somebody because I still haven't yet. Mm -hmm. I haven't scored with a woman or a man, anyway, anything, because I, I'm all, 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 because you know my story. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. so there I am, and then I got involved with some New England witches. The real deal, folks. The New England The real, real New England witches. W-I-T-C-H. And so... I don't know, one of them, you know, she said that she thought that I was kind of like a warlock. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, wow, that's interesting. And she said, how would you like to come to one of our uh, meetings or gatherings? Mm -hmm. You know, because I guess when you have a coven of ladies, you need the masculine energy to balance mm -hmm. the whole program, and that should be a warlock. So, mm -hmm. anyways, they chose me, and so I went there, and making a long story short, they're running around naked, screaming and yelling all these crazy <laughs> things, <laughs> and candles everywhere, and all this shit going on. <laughs> and then I watched this girl chop, elevating off the ground, you know, with no strings or anything attached to her, so I just ran. <laughs> I ran. <laughs> <laughs> I can't deal with this shit. <laughs> so I ran out of there. So now you understand. This is my situation now. Yeah. And so then one of these witches seduced me, finally, and but then she cursed me at the same time. Mm. And she left her her cycle rag behind my bed, and in the morning oh, it had to start a thousand black widow spiders. Oh, so nice. I had to kill all the black widow spiders because they were going to be cursed, these spiders, to kill me. Anyways. That's the witches. That's that. So here I am. So knock, knock, knock on my door. I open my door and there it is. My younger brother. He had, I finally remember he was shaved up, but he had a book under his arm. And then he said to me, he what said, was your, uh, my brother Thomas. Thomas Matson. I don't know if he had got initiated. Anyway, his name was Thomas. And so anyways, he had this book under his arm, and so he said, you know, brother, I, I'd like to embrace you. I can't. I can't come in your house because I sense there's evil in there that goes beyond what I can, I can't yeah. deal with that evil that's in your room. Because I have my refrigerator full of all kinds of meat and all kinds mm -hmm. of things, you know, I can never, I'm eating garbage, I was whacked. Mm -hmm. So, he said, uh, he said to me, this is how, this is December 1970, my brother knocked on the door. And he said to me, he said, after he said he couldn't come in, he said, how would you like to go on a mystical journey to the spiritual world and see Yogeshvara? the supreme mystic. And immediately, as soon as I heard the name, Yogeshvara, I, I don't know, it just became part of my life. Here I am today, worshiping still Yogeshvara. So anyway, so there it is. So, and so then he opened up this book and he pulled out four pictures. And this was an insert that was in the Ishopanishad. Remember the Ishopanishad Was that book? the book that he had? That's the book. No, no, no. He had the Christian book. Oh. No. But he had the Ishopanishad insert mm. of Lord Vishnu and the causal ocean yeah. halfway up. So he gave, gave me four of those. And he said, put one on each wall in your room. Take all the meat and all the carcasses out of your refrigerator. Clean your house up. And read this Christian book. Mm. Wow. So I got rid of all my garb, all the carcasses, all the meat, everything. I threw it all out, got rid of everything, cleaned the refrigerator, got everything, got rid of all my pots and pans. I, 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 I got some crazy stuff. What, why is it you think that when he showed up and said that, you could have easily been like, screw you, I'm doing what I'm doing? Yeah. No, what was but, it about no, your relationship no, with him no, that made you but, want to... No, it was 
the name Yogi. It was the Lara. name. Was okay. The name of God. That was that, that did it. That, that, that got me. Wow. Gotcha. Nothing else got you me. You felt connected it was, to it. It was the name of God, Yogi Lara. As soon as I heard the name. It just wow. like made sense. That clicked. Okay. It, I made it. Within a moment, there it was. Wow. I, I clicked. Okay. Like I've been there for so it's just eternity. the name. It wasn't the relationship with no, your brother. No, nothing. Or... It was okay. just the name of Yogeshwar that wow. got me. So anyway, so he said, "Now put." The, so I put a picture on each of my walls, got rid of all my carcasses and everything, and then I sat my waited till evening. I lit some incense, you know, because I was into black a little bit, you know, and I lit some incense. Had some beautiful music going, and I sat in the middle of my room. In this hand, I had Krishna book, Prabhupada's Krishna book, and in this hand, I had three trips of orange sunshine LSD. Mm. And I said, well, well, well. Of course, being a five-year <laughs> drug addict, I took the three trips of LSD. <laughs> and then I and started reading Krishna <laughs> book. <laughs> well, well, well. So I flipped book open, and I started reading George Harrison's introduction. Mm. The first page read mm -hmm. real well, first paragraph, and then everything got blurry and I couldn't figure <laughs> out what was going on. <laughs> so then, so then, I have to say this, folks, with all honesty, from my heart, from, from my understanding of God's mercy on us, mm -hmm. I was given, you know what a fog is, right? A fine mist of a fog, one fine mist, water molecule mm -hmm. of, a, of, a, of a mist. I experienced a mystical array of opulence from Yogeshwar, the yeah. supreme mystic. As soon as I flipped it to the first page, and this is God's philosophy, Trisha strike me dead now. <laughs> Every character came out of the picture and filled the room, and then without me knowing, Without me understanding the anything about Krishna consciousness, some kind of pastime went on all around me wow. in living color and sound. Wow. Every page I flipped, the same thing happened. This went on for eight hours, nine hours straight, without stopping. So that's an experience, you know. So. <laughs> Ultimate vision trip. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, so my brother finally comes and he, oh, I open the door and he comes in and immediately embraces me and he says, "Wow, what happened? This is like a temple in here. You know what happened?" And I said, "I, I had a mystical experience with Yogeshwar, obviously." Uh, obviously. <laughs> so he said. So he said. Wow, you had a... Then that's where I got the analogy of the mist drop. He said, you got a mist drop of mystical splendor from Yogeshwar. Now we have to do austerities! <laughs> <laughs> austerities? Wait, what? <laughs> said, because you have a connection, you have just connected with God, even though it's in a small way, still you have to do penance now in austerity. So you know where that penance and austerity was, folks? We were going to hitchhike from Worcester, Massachusetts in the middle of December 1970. We were going to hitchhike from Worcester all the way to the Canadian border and back as our austerity wow. and penance. So we packed up, we bundled up, we packed up rice cakes and rice packs. We just packed us all up. We rolled out and we went. And we did. We started hitchhiking. And then at night time we'd come to different cities, you know, and we'd go to a church. Because in those days, the churches weren't locked. So mm -hmm. we'd go in the church, we'd lay in the pews, sheltered from the evening cold and storms, whatever, and then be on our way. We actually made it to mid-New Hampshire. Wow. So we were getting out of a car and then we were heading onto the freeway. The hitchhike further up, and all of a sudden, a state trooper pulls up behind us, stops his car, has his lights all waggling, so we're turning around, of course. He gets out of his car with his winter boots on, his cowboy hat, 
big jacket, badge. Walked over to her and said, Boys, what the, using the French, what the F are you doing, boy? He's hiking out here in the middle of winter, it's 10 below zero. <laughs> <laughs> so I told them the story of leaving out the acid. We so <laughs> <laughs> out the acid. <laughs> The cop is like this, he's been, he was like this, he didn't know what to do or think. <laughs> so he puts his head up and he says, you know boys, I can't arrest you because you're not doing anything wrong. So get the French again, F home. So we hitchhiked back to Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> and then the first week of January, 1971. My brother and myself got on a bus and went to the Boston Commonwealth, Boston Temple, and I walked in and became a Hare Krishna. <laughs>